there's no doubt the mind is a powerful thing. And for us riders, when it's working against us, well, you may as well just get off and walk. Most riders have experienced choking. That's where you sort of get confused and lose confidence. And then you find yourself riding like you did when you first learned to ride. Or you probably watched a star athlete do the same thing. Something goes wrong in the game and then all of a sudden they're playing like an amateur. Well, commonly with riding, what people do when this happens is not ride or maybe avoid those situations at the very least. Well, today on our exclusive Rider Skills program, we have Clinton Smout back. Clinton's talking about how he helps riders that have had a traumatic experience on their bike, some sort of crash or get off that's preventing them from riding or seriously hindering their riding and how he gets them to overcome that and get back where they should be. This could be from a crash or maybe even a, a problem you had when things got a little technical. Don't give up yet. Wait to hear what Clinton has to say on the topic. My name's Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. I'm Sam Manningham. Simon Wilson. Simon, Simon Baby. Brian Field. Helga Pedersen. Jocelyn Snow. Charlie Borman. Carl Parker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Grant Johnson. Jimmy Lewis. Elspeth Fair. Jim Hodge. Jansen. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Best Rest Products is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Googletech filters, cyclepump.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And, of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear, greenchiliadv.com. Rider Skills is an exclusive program that we developed here at Adventure Rider Radio designed to give you tools that can improve your riding skills both on and off-road. Now, of course, this segment is not meant to be a substitute for professional training. These are ideas and concepts that should you choose to try, you're doing so at your own risk. Today, we've got Clinton Smout. Clinton heads up his training center called Smart Adventures in Ontario, Canada. He's a certified BMW instructor as well as instructor for ATV and snowmobile. Basically, I think he says all things wheels. Clinton helps riders also, uh, besides the training that he does. Clinton helps riders that have had a get-off or had some sort of problem, but and they're having trouble getting back on the bike. And what I really like about his approach is how he uses small bikes and dirt riding to build confidence and get these riders back where they should be. You'll understand this better as we go through this today. And it doesn't have to be a big get-off that stops you from riding at all. It could be the last time that you went down a dirt path, a dirt trail, a grassy section, and dropped the bike. Maybe you dropped it in mud, or maybe it was a hill that you couldn't make it up. Maybe it was gravel, you know, just a, a slow speed drop that got you rattled. And in those experiences... Often, if we think we can't do it, we just avoid that kind of riding, and it really limits everything you can do. But it doesn't have to end like that. One of the things that I love about this sport is that no matter how good you are, there's always something that you can learn or something that you can improve on. But the first step, the first step is recognizing that you need help getting past a mental block or a skill block that's keeping you from doing what you would like to do. And usually, Usually it's in our head more than it has to do with the skills. We get built up about things and then we get apprehensive. And once you've lost your confidence, it doesn't matter if you know the technique. That's not going to help you at that point. You need the confidence. It's Clinton Smote. I'm from Barrie, Ontario, Canada, and I'm a riding instructor. 
Clinton, welcome back. Well, so good to be here, Jim. Fall is here. Your your riding season is winding down. What, what was the season like? This whole COVID thing is turning everything on its head. What was it like for you? Well, it turned out fantastic. Initially, we were closed until late June when we normally open up in mid-April. So financially, it was a struggle and horrible not being able to teach. So for therapy, I just rebuilt dirt bikes and, you know, new seats, paint, whatever. That kept me sane. And then I sold about 40 vehicles that we weren't planning on using because we didn't think it would be very busy this summer. Oh, wow. 40 vehicles. Well, you, you've got a lot of vehicles there. Yeah, I think we used to have 137 or something. And we sold a lot of dirt bikes and ATVs, a couple of my personal BMWs, just for cash flow. And as I say, we thought if we did open, it would be very minimal students to guarantee social distancing. So we started in late June with 10 customers when on our busy days, we would have as many as 50 different groups, different ages. And we soon moved up to 20. Once we got a handle on how to do all the extra cleaning and being able to teach with masks on. And then we ended up teaching a maximum of 30 every day we were open. We actually it turned away a lot of people this particular summer there was a fever for off-road riding that i've never experienced mm. wow that's that's really neat and, and of course that that um, sort of parallels the the word that i'm hearing from the power sport industry really in general sales went through the roof this spring you know with covid where they're selling all kinds of bikes they're selling all kinds of extra products and things like that um, just a, an amazing thing considering we all would have thought, I, I would think, we all would have thought that everything would have shut down. Yes, I think people were trapped in their homes for a certain length of time. Then they weren't allowed to travel internationally. So, you know, tours to wherever were all cancelled. So they wanted to get out and enjoy adventure. And even if they didn't ride, our novice training just quadrupled this year. So I actually had to reacquire some product to help meet the demand. <laughs> it was crazy. Well, and it's really, um, I think it's a, it's a great, it's a great indication that, that we have more riders coming out. Absolutely. Maybe just because of this. So maybe this is the boost that our industry needs. Yes. Well, today we're, we're talking about getting back on the bike after a crash. I thought we should start really by, you must have had a crash. Oh my goodness. <laughs> um I think because I started so young and wasn't very good, I perfected crashing. <laughs> so I very seldom got hurt. Uh, and people have asked me, can you teach me how to fall? And I always answer no, because gravity tends to bring you down to the ground faster than you could turn or do something. Uh, stunt riders learn how to crash appropriately, but most of us, mortal people, uh, you just fall off and flop around and slide and hopefully not get hurt. But I think if you fall a lot as a child, not only does it not freak you out psychologically because you just get back on, maybe you have to straighten your steering or put a part back on the bike, but 
I was never freaked out to the point where I didn't want to ride again. Even after being injured, I couldn't wait to get back on a motorcycle. Um, and I've ridden many times with casts on, which sounds insane, but I just couldn't wait. <laughs> but the person that we help is someone who maybe they didn't have that much experience falling off. And when they had one, it was quite traumatic. Mm. So it, they are freaked out of the thought. They want to ride again. The bones have healed. The abrasion scars are healed. But psychologically, they just can't do it. And they're freaked out by it. Mm. You and I have both grew up riding horses. So we've certainly both experienced getting off of a horse in a way that you don't want to. The saying for that is what you said, your dad said, was always get right back on. And I heard the exact same thing. I don't know why. What is <laughs> I think my dad, uh, what he explained was it's a young horse. He was breaking it in gently on a lunging rope in a circle. And then the first weight on its back was, you know, seven, eight, nine-year-old Clinton. So I jump on there and hang on to the mane. This is no saddle, just hang on for dear life. And I got bucked off so many times. And even though it was my fault for getting kicked off, get back on the horse because you don't want the horse to feel that it's beat you. Maybe that was the psychology. Mm, yeah, I, I thought maybe it was something to do with the rider as well, because yes. the, the rider tends to, you, you lose your nerve, or it's possible to lose your nerve. When you're younger, and it's funny because it was the same sort of thing for me, it was my sister used to go and, and buy horses all the time, and we would just go to the big corral, and they'd rope a horse, and she'd say, get on that one, and I'd be on the ground, and she'd say, okay, that one doesn't ride, let's let's try this one over here. Yeah. <laughs> and only because yeah. I was young, and, and, and easily influenced by my older sister, that I actually do it. It, maybe that helped me for, for motorcycle riding. I, I'm not sure. Do you, do you think you can get conditioned to having a traumatic experience and getting over it quickly? Yes. Different people, of course, react differently. It could be a very gentle fall. And just the potential injury that could affect the rest of that person's life, either their livelihood or other sports, they don't want to risk it. So now there's a mental block to relaxing and enjoying it for a subsequent ride because they're freaked out about the last fall. I did meet a lady once. She was had her own aerobics company and she taught aerobics and had a lot of instructors and physically incredibly fit. She ran marathons and swam all the lakes locally, but she really wanted to ride because her partner rode. The concept of being hurt on the motorcycle freaked her out because she didn't want it to, to affect her livelihood. She couldn't teach aerobics with a cast on. And so we got her relaxed as we could, a small bike, flat-footed, because that seems to help confidence. But she would not let go of the clutch, absolutely terrified that she was going to crash, no matter how I tried to convince her. And I don't recommend instructors do this, and I haven't told any of my instructors I did it, but partly in frustration, but partly to prove a point, I pushed her over and knocked her off the motorcycle in soft grass. And uh, if looks could kill, uh, she never did come back, by the way, for subsequent <laughs> training, but it worked. 
my what I said then was, now, how are you? What do you mean? You pushed me over. Yes. Now, let's move on. You weren't hurt. You're encased in armor. There's no way you can get hurt just putting around like we're going to, which isn't completely true. I guess you could. But that seemed to snap her out of her fear a little. I don't think she really liked me after that, but (laughs) that's besides the point. She did learn how to ride, bought a motorcycle, and then subsequent motorcycles. So fear is a pretty weird thing to deal with when learning how to do something. And I think you've got to reach that relaxed state where you can gain confidence And if you're freaked out, you're just going to white knuckle the grips, clench your teeth, and enjoyment is really hard to reach. I wonder if part of this, um, being freaked out after you have some sort of get off, is the fact that maybe you weren't real comfortable with the machine to begin with. Would that play into it all? I mean, because I mean, I'm thinking that if you're very comfortable with, with anything that you're, you're dealing with, when something happens, you sort of understand it more, what happened, and uh, it doesn't seem like such a mystery. You say, okay, well, I, I went down because there was the gravel in the corner, and I touched the front brake, and that was stupid. I shouldn't have done it, and I went down, and it's unfortunate. I you know, screwed up my bike a little bit, but um, you sort of move on at that point. Do you think that has anything to do with it? Yes, I do. And I support that theory in the way that we try to get someone back on the motorcycle. So we analyze what happened in this traumatic crash that they've experienced. Where was it? Was it in traffic, pavement, gravel? Was it off-road? What was the person's riding experience? If they'd been on the bike for two hours... And perhaps it was too big or too powerful or too tall a motorcycle. Did that lead to the mishap? And that really helps in structuring kind of a customized approach to getting them back on the horse or the motorcycle. Mm, Yeah. but It's obviously cold in your office right now because I can hear your heater running. Yeah, sorry. Every now and then the fan will come on. Fall is definitely here. (laughs) Yeah, it is. Well, so the comfort with machine, and I and I guess part of this is almost uh, the nature of the adventure motorcycling scene in particular, because we're looking at big bikes out there. When people are going to buy a big bike, they're they tend to look at well, six fifty plus. Really, a lot of people are, and I think that's where a lot of the um, the dealerships sort of tell you that that's where the adventure portion is. You got to get up towards that leader size, and all of a sudden you're into a great big bike that's very very powerful and yes. very heavy. It is, and that you know if you've got previous riding experience on a succession of smaller bikes and then you increase the cc you know you start on a 250 as a kid as i did and then you move up in street bike size i must have had 10 street bikes before i got a really big one and that confidence and ability is easier to attain on a small bike and they're really fun it's just especially in north america Uh, The industry tends, or it has historically, pushed larger motorcycles. Because we have big, long, straight roads, we need them. Whereas in England and France, the roads, other than the big highways, are very twisty and windy. You don't really need anything bigger than a 400 to enjoy it. But adventure, perhaps with Charlie and Ewan traveling on a 1200, 
Uh, most of us have bought, as you say, big bikes. And it's a, a larger hurdle to get over and getting comfortable on the bigger, heavier bike. Mm. Yeah, and don't forget, Charlie and Ewan were riding an electric bike on their last adventure. We, we just had Charlie on the show here the other uh, two weeks ago, I guess awesome. it was. Yeah, and he was talking about his electric adventure, which is uh, something completely different. But uh, so not on a twelve hundred anymore. But but anyway, right. so let me let me go further. With what I'm I'm sort of fishing for here from you is it so if part of that fear after we have a get off. Uh, some people, if they have that fear of getting back on the bike, part of that is not being fully in touch or fully comfortable with that big machine or whatever it is you were riding beforehand. So in a, as a preventative measure, measure, would it make sense that um, we spend more time, I, I would assume, taking lessons, more, more time getting comfortable on our machine to sort of mitigate any future problems if you did have a problem? Absolutely. I think that's in any sport. Um, developing that muscle memory response to riding and it's easier to do on a smaller bike and we are generalizing Jim and thinking that you know that big crash was because you weren't experienced enough or Mm. the bike was big I have met customers who were extremely experienced and part of the psychology behind it I think is that It was a bit of a shock when they had that really big crash and injury because they were so experienced. Mm. Uh, A name that I'll drop is a friend of mine who's an instructor, Canadian journalist named Liz Jensen. She grew up on farms and subsequently tons of gravel road experience and then evolved into street bikes and did hundreds of thousands of miles riding, mostly on road, but certainly tons of gravel roads. And she did big trips, two, three months at a time adventure riding. She had a very large bike, a 1200 Yamaha Tenere, and on a gravel road, very loose corner. She had taken lots of off-road training with me, actually, And she said she heard my voice saying, you know, in gravel, when it starts to wobble, give it throttle, speed up, which is often counterintuitive. We've talked about that before. But sadly, she was on a corner. And with accelerating, it perhaps wasn't the best option. She ended up going off the road down a deep ditch and was very injured, traumatic shoulder injuries, took a year of physiotherapy and getting out back on a bike wasn't that hard but getting back on riding gravel was petrifying she was absolutely frozen and wasn't going to be able to experience her life which is adventure riding and journalism she travels and writes and gives lectures so to restrict her future riding to pavement would have been devastating So she came to us and we did kind of a very structured approach of starting on a little 125 round and round on hard packed gravel, almost like pavement, just to get back on a bike and feel the front and rear wheel wiggle around a little bit that Mm. is, is foreign to a pavement rider. Yeah. Now, uh, now we had Liz on the show as well. um, And she talked about that. 
I remember that, like, when she was saying that, you know, that she was, she could hear your voice and she was thinking of what you were, what you taught her in her instruction to accelerate. But that does sort of say that she wasn't a hundred percent comfortable on that gravel, you know, exactly. in, in, that, in that sort of situation. And another situation I was thinking of that while you were telling that story, I was thinking about, well, there's the other ones that you hear of where you get experienced riders where they have an animal run out or something bizarre happened to the bike or something else, some sort of other object that they, they didn't expect to encounter. That that can be a tough one because, um, I don't know, maybe it wakes you up to realize just how vulnerable you are because it does take a lot to whip down the road at 80 kilometers an hour with grass on both sides of the road where an animal could dart out at you at any time. Yes, exactly. Um, I always let my friend go first. <laughs> That's a good way. And now, now, unless the deer comes after your friend went by. That's true. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but okay, so what is it? What other things are we feeling, do you think, when we have a get off and, and the concerns of getting back on? Well, if you've been injured and the bike's been damaged, you know, obviously we don't want to go that route again. So I think it's rational after a crash to be afraid. Mm-hmm. Uh, as humans, that is survival. You know, you pick up a snake, it bites you. Don't pick up a snake again unless you know how to do it and where to pick it up and what kind of snake it is. But I think as humans, we learn from our mistakes and we're smart to avoid them. But if it means we can't ride anymore, then we've got to work on those rational fears that have become irrational. Mm. You know, planes crash, but are we never going to fly again? And people actually have phobia about flying. Um, If you remember Rain Man, Qantas at the time was the only airline that hadn't crashed. But you can't stop riding just if you're freaked out. There's ways to get around it. And that's what we've tried to customize. And it's not a big moneymaker. We might do one person a month. And it has to be one-on-one because the group dynamic doesn't work. Because everybody's crash and and subsequent phobia about rewriting is different. Yeah, it's fascinating. I, I'm fascinated by the psychology of it. And it's very rewarding if anybody learns how to ride. But to get someone back on the bike smiling again and comfortable, that's really rewarding. Heidi and David Winters are adventure motorcyclists. They rode two up around the world in their KTM. They're also the owners of Atlas Throttle Lock. Now, we had them on the show some time ago talking about their adventure, what happened on the adventure, but also what happened afterwards. You see, they got so frustrated while they were riding because of an incident. You should actually go back and listen to the episode. I'll throw the link in again in this episode so you can go back and listen to this episode if you haven't heard it already. But they got very frustrated with their throttle lock that they had on the bike. Now, if you don't know what a throttle lock is, it's kind of like a kind of like a cruise control, but only doesn't vary the speed. It just holds the throttle. So you set the throttle in a position, whatever speed you're at, and it holds it there. Anyway, they got frustrated with the one they had, really frustrated because of what happened. There, there was a reason that that it was uh, so important for them, and they couldn't find one that worked really well. So when they got back, they decided to have a go at making one of their own. Now, you got to realize that neither David or Heidi are trained engineers, but what they made when they invented their Atlas throttle lock is simply amazing. Uh, I have one on my bike now, and it sort of changed the way I ride. My other lock was a pain to use. It just didn't work very well all around. I mean, I had a lot of issues with it, but, but the Atlas throttle lock 
this is a work of engineering melded with art. The thing is is beautiful to look at. I mean, it's really it's a fine piece of equipment. Um, it fits on the bike as if it were a factory. It works even better. It's got two buttons on it, one for engage, one for disengage, and you can adjust and readjust the throttle while the lock is on. So as you're riding along, you can set it at one speed and then adjust it again. You know, if you hit a hill and it starts to slow down, it's just a pleasure to use. The company is called Atlas Throttle Lock um, and invented and sold by riders just like you and I, um, Heidi and David. AtlasThrottleLock.com is the website. And don't forget, throw in there, mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio anytime you're dealing with them. AtlasThrottleLock.com. You know, if you're riding on your stock pegs still, you're hindering, literally hindering your ability to ride. Adventure bikes need robust foot pegs to give the added leverage, control, and durability to make the bikes do the things that would kind of shock other riders. We do a lot with adventure bikes. Of course, they're designed to be adventure bikes, but they can't make everything great on the bike or it would cost a fortune to buy. And probably more importantly, they have no idea how you ride. Now, IMS Products has researched and designed a full line of foot pegs for adventure motorcycles that fit all riding styles, from their very large ADV-1 and ADV-2 pegs down to their core enduro for those that are more technical riders and get into tighter places. All IMS foot pegs are made of cast-certified stainless steel. They're all made in the USA. They're all warranted for life. IMSproducts.com is the website. And anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them on Adventure Rider Radio. IMSproducts.com. What do you have to do? What's the first thing you have to do with them to, to sort of break the ice? Well, we start, we, we talk about what happened. So if it was in gra- on a gravel road as an adventure rider, we make sure that they're completely armored up. I'm talking knee pads, elbow pads, chest protector, more gear than most of us would ride with on our adventure bikes. That's part of the psychology is, the you know, kick the knee pad once they have it on. There, did you feel that? And what I'm trying to do is convince them that even if they do have a little tip over today, this gear is amazing. It's really going to protect you. That's step number one. Then we get them on a really small bike, maybe a 125 so that their feet are completely flat on the ground. And we tell them first gear on this bike goes eight miles an hour, 12 kilometers an hour. That's all we're going to work with is for a little while till you're comfortable first gear. Now it sounds hilarious to those of us that are riding all the time, but to that person that's freaked out, just getting the clutch out and moving around is a big step. Mm. Then we gradually increase the speed, get up into the other gears, do some braking. We might do some wide, easy trails on our farm. It's quite hard packed. There's no big hills or loose gravel or deep sand. And it's all towards getting them to relax, forget about crashing and smile. And eventually we'll move up to a 250 we have a Yamaha little XT250s. They're fantastic for, you wouldn't want to maybe tour around the world on them because I'm sure some people have, but it's pretty limited in what you can carry. And it's not a high speed bike, but for just getting back out on the road, it's perfect. Uh, we also have a BMW 310 that I bought. It's a GS 
not very tall, not very heavy. So that's a little bit bigger than the Yamaha. And then it's one-on-one. I will lead and I'll tell them, I'm going to keep an eye on you in my mirror. I'm not going to speed. We do back roads around where our school is. So we're going to encounter very little, if any, traffic. And I stick to the paved roads. And then if everything's going well, we end up on some gravel roads and do a little chit chat. Stop frequently just to find out, how are you doing? How are you feeling? Is anything freaking you out? And then we address that. What do you think the key is? Uh, like, what, what are you looking for, I guess, is what I'm saying. What, a smile. But I mean, what does yeah. that do for them? What, what, is that, what, what are they trying to overcome or what are you trying to get them to overcome there? The, the fear of crashing again will limit someone's enjoyment and progress towards getting back on the bike, in my opinion. Mm. So if we can relax them so the white knuckle grip is gone and they're actually smiling a bit, they're enjoying riding a little bike again, then that's success. And we gradually build up to conquering what actually happened before. So if it was a crash in the gravel because they grabbed the front brake, we do a lot of rear brake slides to get the bike loose, and but it does come to a stop. And then gradually add a little bit of front brake. We suggest two-finger use of the front brake lever. You're less likely to grab a handful because gravel isn't as forgiving as pavement, of course. And that goes a long way to getting that comfort back, the smile back, which is critical. They can't, I don't think you can really get back into a sport where you've been hurt unless you're having fun got to relax. Well, and it does speak to, to people's desire to ride because you could just walk away from it at that point and say, I'm done. I mean, if you went white water, white water rafting or something and hurt yourself, it, it would be, you know, understandable, acceptable to just walk away from it and say, okay, I'm done with that. It was too close. Yes. You know, people actually but want to ride. a lot of us, I think a lot of your listeners who are passionate riders, they would hate the thought of someday having to give it up. I'm thinking about it now and then. I'm 61. How much longer am I going to have the strength and ability to ride? I hope 10 years. Who knows? But eventually, I may have to not ride, which is that'd be like cutting my arm off. So for many people, that crash and the subsequent phobia of riding again is devastating. So it's really important part of our school is to try to help that person. And first of all, they they have to, the desire's got to be there. If someone crashes, uh, we did meet a young lady about a month ago. Her husband had bought her a great big cruiser, very heavy bike, very powerful, and because that's what he rode. And she took a two-day course to get her license, which is on a 250, and then the idea was he would fall, she would follow him out on rides. So probably not at a pace that she should have been riding at. And she had a pretty bad crash, rode the bike off and was very hesitant to get back on. And her husband wanted to buy another big bike. And somehow they found our school. I suggested not buying that great big bike 
to move up progressively, which, funny enough, was how her husband had got into riding as a kid, a 125, then a 350, then a 750. Now he's on the great big monster bike. Um, And so he appreciated the fact that maybe he shouldn't have bought that great big monster to begin with. And then uh, with a day, actually she came back twice. So we did two days with a two week split between and then got her back out on the road on this little XT250. And guess what bike she went and bought? Same An one. XT250. 250, yeah. And she's loving it again. And she completely believes that she will buy a bigger bike next year. But for now, this is all she needs to feel comfortable and happy and gain some more skills. What was the reason that, uh, what, what caused her accident? A car pulled out and she grabbed the front brake. Uh, this particular bike didn't have ABS, front end locked up, and she crashed. Mm-hmm. Uh, didn't break her arm, but severely bruised. Um, didn't have what I would think of as all the proper riding gear, because her husband had a bit of a l- relaxed approach to riding gear, because, of course, he wasn't planning on falling. But uh, both of them have full gear now. Yeah, I mean, nobody nobody really plans on falling, I guess, unless you're doing some some dirt stuff. But all of your 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 training seems to go back to dirt. Do you see that as sort of the baseline? Yes, and we love it in this scenario for helping people because there's no traffic there. It's a very controlled environment. There's no other cars, so to jump back into busy traffic after a hard fall and you're freaked out a little, I think it's a little too stressful. Right. But that doesn't add extra stress for the person that, that obviously this person, the example you just gave, she was a street rider and then you bring her in and you put her on a, a dual sport bike and have her ride in the dirt. That doesn't add to her stress being that she's not a dirt rider? No, maybe initially, but with practice and education on, it's okay if the wheel moves around. We do some heavy rear braking and get the bike sliding. I think those skill sets help pavement riders as we've discussed before so we have to retrain a little bit uh, very careful brake use and gentle clutch release because the traction is different than what she had so the whole concept is little steps and then stop relax how's that feeling well the gravel freaked me out yeah but you'll get used to that we're just going to go slow you're not going to fall off and eventually the smile happens. Is there any way that people can coach themselves through something like this? Yeah. Or is this I something think, that you need outside help for? Well, you know, there isn't an instructor with a dirt bike school down the road. So absolutely you could do it on your own. But I think it requires a small bike. It really does help get comfortable again. And then very quiet roads, or even better, a large paved parking lot where you're allowed to be, and do some slow speed riding, some big circles, practice some gentle stops, and then get on the brakes harder and harder. It's something that we recommend people do every start of a riding season. And it gets not only gets the rust out if you've been off the bike for a while, but it also inst- instills 
confidence. So once you get out in traffic, you can use the clutch properly. You can turn and you can stop quickly if you have to. You say get the rust out. You're talking about our, our skills. Yes, um, because, you know, in Canada, most of us don't ride 12 months of the year. Many of our listeners do. I envy them. But soon enough, I'll be on a snowmobile for a few months and not a motorcycle. So my skills are rusty, too. I always go out and pound a bike in the gravel and on uh, paved roads, but in a parking lot first. Mm-hmm. As, as a warm-up for the season? Yes. So what, what else do you do with um, with people who are trying to recover from a, a major crash and get back on the bike? So what we do is find out where the problem was created. If it was a fall in the crash, uh, the crash was in the gravel, or maybe it was on the street, and then customize the approach. We use a bit of classroom time if it's street. So on a blackboard, we'll go over some survival techniques that may have helped if they'd followed that before. For instance, stopping in traffic, don't be right behind the bumper of the car in front of you because you haven't left yourself an out to swing out between cars if you're going to be hit from behind. Things like that. If the crash they had was a car turned left in front of them, we go over all the tips that we try to teach the street rider for survival. Keep your head up. Scan the intersection. If you see the hood of a car drop or the car is gravitating, changing position, maybe you're about to get cut off. Cover your brakes. Drop your speed down. Move to the right. All those things will help. And maybe those people didn't do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so analyzing the, the crash itself, because that is really important, isn't it? We've talked about this before, but when it when it comes to riding off-road, and I know for myself, when I go down, I, I don't blame the bike. It's it's my skills. I know the bike can do far more than what I can do with it. It's my skills. So I have to look at it and say, okay, what did I do here? What, you know, what's my part in this? What caused this to happen? And then hopefully learn from that as I, as I go on. It's the same sort of thing, isn't it? It is. But what we have found with some people is They're too analytical and they look backwards Mm. too much. So they go over the crash. Well, it must have been front brake and what tire did I have on? And maybe if I'd had brand new brake pads, I think it's helpful and healthy to look at why we've crashed. But then for God's sakes, move on. Don't dwell on it week after week after week because your focus is in the wrong place. Figure out why you crashed and move on. Mm. Don't grab the front brake in the gravel. But, but would you always recommend um, somebody getting instruction? We, we were started to talk yeah, about Yeah, if that. it's possible, I think a controlled environment, it's not a loved one giving us tips because in my opinion, that doesn't work. I couldn't teach my wife how to drive. <laughs> I did try. I had a brand new little Toyota with a stick shift. It was my pride and joy, the first thing I'd ever bought new. And at one point, uh, my wife pulled over. I heard the door slam, and she got out and walked. <laughs> I think we're, we are too close to loved ones, and people take your meaningful instruction the wrong way. I teach for a living, and I couldn't teach my own family. Mm. Uh, I made my five-year-old son cry. He was riding along on a mini bike. But he was looking down quite a bit. 
which is very common. So I stopped him. I said, buddy, you got to look up. And he looked straight up into the sky, which I probably should have said, look forward. (laughs) But I may have barked a little because I thought he was goofing off. And he started crying. Mm. So an instructor physically removed me from the scene and told me to go away, which I should have done. But my ego thought, you know, I could teach him. And you can't. I don't think it's a good idea. So having someone else give you some tips and encouragement is way better than a loved one. Yeah, I was going to say we're always the hardest on the ones we love, aren't we? You know, it's, it's easy to lash out and things like that. And like you say, it's not the environment for it. Exactly. And the other part, um, the instructor usually will have, if it's a course, a smaller bike. So wherever you took your, if you did get your license through some kind of rider training program, they have refresher programs. If they don't, take the course again. And that two days, three days on a small bike will really help your confidence, kind of get the fun back and stop worrying about the crash. That's really important. What would you say if if someone said, you know, well, I've had a crash and I don't think I should get back on the bike? I'd try tennis. (laughs) No, I wouldn't say that. I've often thought that, that I should tell this person, but uh, that's just my own impatience at their lack of progress. But uh, as an instructor, I think patience is the biggest thing you could have, but as I age, I have a little less than I used to. <laughs> At least my son said I do. But it's, I think if someone is that freaked out, we've got to dig a little deeper psychologically and find out why and then attack that. If it's you're freaked out with gravel, uh, maybe switch to pavement and don't do gravel again. But as an adventure rider for my friend Liz Jensen, that wasn't a possibility that she could tour around, go to her talks that she gives without encountering gravel roads. So we had to address that. But other folks, um, sometimes getting back in the sport, if your bike was wrecked, start on a smaller one. Don't buy the same great big bike. Build the confidence uh, slowly and then acquire a bigger bike if you need it or think you should after a season or two. Uh, Sometimes people get injured because they weren't wearing what you and I would think of as proper gear. So buy the gear next time. That does a lot to your own confidence, just knowing you're, I can't ride well off-road if I don't have knee pads on because I've had knee injuries before. So if I'm just teaching, you know, kids and I'm riding around at 10 miles an hour, I don't put my knee pads on, but I can't then switch to an adult rider who's ridden lots of dirt and go through the single track quickly. I can't do it comfortably because part of my brain is screaming, you moron, you didn't put your knee pads on. You know what happened last time you crashed? I had a surgery on the knee, which, you know, a $20 knee pad would have prevented. So smaller bike, really good gear, and then slow speed practice in a controlled environment. That's, I think, three keys to get somebody back on the bike. What do you think are the most common um, types of crashes that you deal with people trying to recover from? 
Um, usually it's a street rider that is coming to us for a little refresher and some extra training. And in a way, it's therapy as well. To, if you have a nice, calm instructor, they're laid back and relaxed, and they use humor, then that really helps relax the person. But the crashes we hear about are street-based. That's who, or it might be a gravel road, but it's definitely not out in the bush. Mm. Uh, people that we meet, they've fallen in traffic or in an adventure ride on the Dempster Highway and they had a bad crash just because they're soft sections and they're going too fast. And the traffic ones are generally a car is turned left in front of the rider. That causes lots of crashes. Uh, a very similar one is a car pulls out going the same direction as we are, but they didn't look to the left and see us, so we crashed in braking. So some of our approach is rider skill improvement, and the other part is kind of mental motorcycling, looking ahead, playing chess on your motorcycle as you go through traffic, planning a couple of moves ahead. And that type of therapy or training really helps that person too. So let's just jump back to skills for a minute then. So what skills do you, do you find uh, are lacking or, or need to be polished or improved more from people that are reporting these crashes? Emergency maneuvers. So that would encompass braking hard, being able to stop in as short a distance as possible. People practice it when they get their license. And then, you know, they may not have a need or a challenge of their braking abilities in an emergency for seasons worth of riding. Then they get cut off. They're minding their own business, riding long, and they get cut off. So a crash then, if your braking skills are really rusty and you just hammer on the front brake without ABS, you're probably going to crash. So a refresher, uh, we start with gravel first, and I love getting people comfortable with a lack of traction. So hammering on the rear brake on purpose, so it slides around a little. Uh, I think that really helps your pavement skills, because if you lose the back end of the bike, you're not going to just fall down. Dirt riders would start giggling if it slides a little. And then careful use, progressive use of the front brake is really important. So you can't just grab it. You've got to get weight transfer onto the contact patch of the front tire by a gentle application. Once the weight's on the contact patch, you have traction, you can get on the brake harder. But if you have cat-like reflexes and just sneak out and grab the brake, it's very hard to maintain traction if you don't have ABS. Mm. And you now you did say there that there's um, those common skills that there's these, these that people are are lacking. And you mentioned about the um, the braking, how people try it often when they when they get their license and then they don't do it afterwards. So what do you tell people for practicing braking? If you don't have the opportunity to take a refresher course or an advanced course, do it yourself. Go to a big parking lot. Set up some pop cans if not, if there's no painted lines and do straight line braking from a low speed first. 
20 miles an hour. Both brakes very calmly and cautiously, again and again and again. Then build up the speed and try to shorten the braking distance that you attain to the point where, you know, the back wheel's howling a little and the front suspension's diving down, but you're doing a quick stop. That's an integral part of confidence that every street rider should have, being able to stop really quickly. And in the, the customers that I meet, a majority of them haven't practiced it and can't do it. And this is part of what you're saying is in a lot of crashes that people are dealing with. Big time. Or there's still people out there that we meet won't use the front brake. They just use the rear brake. So you're stopping in a distance now that your pickup truck would stop in. So it's just not safe. The front brake should be your best friend, but you have to learn how to treat it properly. Street bike or off-road bike. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Adventure bikes... We recommend, although the technology is getting better and better, we still recommend shutting off the ABS if you're going on a gravel road for an extended period of time. So if it's just a bit of construction for a kilometer, leave leave the bike settings as it is, ABS on. But if you're off-road in Peru for days on end, shut it off every time you start the bike. The reason being is, ABS, as we know, prevents the wheel from locking up. So in gravel, loose sand, whatever, it grabs and lets go hundreds of times a second. And in gravel, it does that so often for such a length of distance, it feels like you have no brakes and you get very poor braking ability with ABS on a loose gravel road, especially a downhill. So uh, we get customers to try it with the ABS on. And I set up what we call a braking box. Just try and stop with your front wheel in that box of pylons. Invariably, they blow right through because the wheels won't lock up and the braking is so poor. And their judgment is that at the speed and when they put the brakes on, they're going to be able to stop there. And in reality, they blow right through. And they have very big eyes after that. Mm. Then we shut the ABS off and have the customer ride in rear brake only for a few times. Yes, it skids, but it stops in a shorter distance. And they're gaining confidence with, yeah, I'm still in control even though the back wheel's locked up. Then we add very careful use of the front brake in addition to the rear just two fingers. And that gives them confidence to stop in gravel. And part of the thing with ABS is that um, when we're stopping in a loose surface, like like gravel in particular, is that as you start to, to lock up that front wheel, just before it starts to lock up, it's actually digging down into the gravel without ABS. But with ABS, it seems to kind of stay on top, doesn't it? Keep rolling. It does. And, uh, That freaks out a lot of people. Oh, yeah. Our judgment skills for stopping on different surfaces um, should align with the surface. But most of us, our braking judgment of when we put on the brakes, how hard, is based on dry pavement because that's, you know, I don't know, 90% of what we ride. But when it's wet or there's loose gravel 
on a corner that's kicked up from the soft shoulder, braking changes dramatically when the surface under the tire changes. So a good rider has that under their belt, that skill set and the mental awareness that, man, I can't grab the front brake as hard because it's loose here. And if not, they're going to be surprised. And that's where a lot of crashes come. Mm -hmm. So uh, it it appears, you know, from what you're saying is that the whole, the whole basis of of your training to get people back onto the bike after they've had a major crash, the key really is dirt or maybe two keys. What I'm seeing is, is dirt and small bike. Yeah, mostly for us it works because that's one place I can completely control as far as no traffic. We have one grassy field with a, it'd be about 10 foot wide trail around the perimeter. And I'll just say to everybody, don't take your customers over there on the farm because I'm going to be working with Joe for a couple hours before we get out on the road. So there's nobody else there. And that way, There's no distractions and no other traffic to freak the person out. I can't really provide that on a secondary paved back road. There's other people that want to use the road. So that's why off-road has worked for us. Plus, we can give them a really small, not street legal bike as their first get back on the bike unit. And then as their confidence comes up, they're starting to smile again, the white knuckle grip is gone, then we can go to a little bit bigger bike. And then the best thing is when they come and visit us after on their own bike, you know, with a coffee sometimes. <laughs> it's That's just really rewarding that, you know, thanks for that extra training. I just did this trip and I did that trip and no problems at all. And they attribute it to that confidence regaining they got that really makes it worthwhile because it is a lot of extra effort and there's very little money in it because you only got the one customer so right but it's not all about money for for me anyway have you ever i mean you mentioned that the knee the knee issue that you had and it sort of makes you think twice about riding without knee protection have you ever had a major crash that made you think about getting back on um Not so much not wanting to get back on. And I've been very fortunate. I haven't hit another vehicle in any crash. Um, Off-road, it was just traction issues or misjudgment where I would jump and had the speed wrong. So rather than landing properly, I cased into the side of the next jump, stuff like that. And that will just trebuchet you over the bars. But on the street, I've been very lucky. Once I followed a guy who had looked like a newspaper he was reading as he was driving. And I was frustrated with that because he was going way too slow, but I couldn't pass him. And it was raining. And then what it turned out to be was he was looking for a map. He was looking for directions on a road map, pre-GPS. And then he actually just stopped right in front of me in the middle of the road. So it was either crash into him or try to swerve around. And when I swerved around, I went into the ditch and fell off the bike. So that was just stupid on my part, following too close, getting frustrated with another idiot driver. And that led to my own crash, where if I just pulled over and stopped or just laid back, put my four ways on, 
there could have been many other answers. Uh, the highest speed crash I had was off-road. It was a BMW event, and another marshal and I were going back on a road that we just left because he'd lost his phone. And he was a much more experienced rider. The guy was flying down what we call a two-track trail. So it's like an ATV trail. Every now and then there'd be big puddles, but they weren't very deep. So my ego said, well, you better keep up to Rick. He owned a BMW store in Edmonton, uh, incredibly adept rider, and no fear of riding at high speeds on rough roads. I would have driven maybe 60 if I'd been by myself, but I was doing 90, 100 kilometers an hour, so 60 miles an hour at times. And it was thrilling, but a voice in my helmet was telling me, you're an idiot, what are you going this fast for? So when I did crash, I hit some clay. Rick was on the left tire track, I was on the right, and the right tire track had clay in the puddle. And the front wheel was like it was gone. It just was as if somebody taken the front end of the bike away. So I fell off. And the bike was sliding in front of me. It went off the trail down a ravine out of sight. And I was digging my heels in to try not to follow it because I didn't know how deep this. I knew it was a ravine because the bike was gone. And the abrasion of sliding on gravel wore a pretty big hole in the side of the BMW suit I was wearing. But luckily I had padding underneath So even though there was a hole in the pants, there didn't end up being a hole in my leg. But of course, Rick didn't even realize that I'd crashed. He just kept going. Now, if this ever happens to a listener, we recommend you take your helmet off and put it on the side of the trail before climbing down the embankment to shut your BMW off. Good tip. Because I got down out of sight And I heard, that was Rick, who finally realized I wasn't there. He turned around and went back very fast. So I climbed up, put my helmet on the side of the trail, and then worked. It took me half an hour to move my bike, increment, you know, six inches at a time on an angle up the bank. And I finally got it up. As he came back, I had the front wheel up, but I was exhausted. I couldn't do anything else. And it was hilarious because he said, hang on, hang on. And he wasn't asking me to wait so he could help. It was so he could get his camera. (laughs) That's when you know you're riding with a friend. Yeah. (laughs) They'll get the shot for you. (laughs) That's right. But uh, it taught me a lesson that often our crash off-road, especially with men, is that we listen to that ego voice in our helmet that says, yeah, you can go as fast as that guy. Mm. And you were probably quite young at the time. How old were you? Oh, no, this was not long ago. It's all 2014, so it was six years ago. (laughs) No, I knew that. I had to ask. Yeah. (laughs) Had to put you on the spot for that one. Yeah. You should know better, Clinton. Oh, I definitely should. But many, many of my own crashes have been stupid judgment calls. Uh, The one that put me in hospital most recently was my son was 16. So it was 12 years ago. 
we were both at a week-long moto camp where kids bring their own bikes and we teach them off-road motocross skills, some trail as well. Fantastic place. There's about 30 kids. My job for the week was to teach absolute beginners. So I guess on the third day, I took them to the big motocross track to watch the kids who had raced before, uh, different groups, of course. And in that group was my eldest son, Ian, 16 at the time. We were both riding identical bikes, a YZ 250 motocross bike. And I saw them go by. They were just practicing doing laps. So I said to my group of of students, you guys stay here. I'm just going to chase my son for a lap and get him on helmet cam. So the plan was I would catch up to him, film him going off of the jumps and stuff, and then I would put it on the TV at home when we got home. And then I'd be a hero because there he is doing jumps. The problem was I couldn't catch him. I could not believe how fast he was going. He didn't race ever, but he was going as fast as all the other kids who did race, mostly because he'd ridden off-road his whole life. So my male ego should have said, oh, I'm so proud of my son. Instead, it said, look at that punk. He's been riding for 10 years. I've been riding for 50. I'm going to catch him. So we were approaching what's called a step-up jump. You go off one little camelback fast enough, it shoots you up in the air to the top of the next hill. It's a step up. And none of us, at least in my experience, I'd never done that. I'd worked at that camp for years and years. I'd never done the step up. That was for pro riders. But my son is screaming towards it. And in my head, I was saying, boy, you better slow down because you're going to, oh my God, he's doing it. And up he launched into the air and landed on the top and kept going. So I thought, well, if he could do it, I could do it. And at the last second, I gave it full throttle just before I took off. The bike went sideways in the air and I'm in the air for quite a few seconds because there's about a 40 foot step up jump. And my friend who runs the camp, who is a pro, he's watching me saying, wow, I didn't know Clinton could do the Bubba scrub. Uh, probably one of the best historical motocross racers is James Stewart out of the US. And he perfected the Bubba scrub. So when you're up in the air, if you turn sideways, it your bike and body act like the flaps on airplane wings and it slows you down in the air so you can control your landing. Mm. So my friend's watching going, wow, Clinton can do the Bubba. Oh, no, you can't. Because I didn't know how to turn <laughs> and point the bike. So I landed sideways. And of course, when the ground is rushing towards you, your instinct is to put your hand out or your foot out. So I put my boot down and it completely exploded my meniscus in my knee because it's just not designed for that kind of stress. Mm. 
But the helmet cam footage is spectacular. <laughs> I'd like to see, see this. <laughs> you see a lot of sky, dirt, sky, dirt, and then, oh, a big ouch. And, of course, my son didn't even know I'd fallen. Well, I mean, even that can make you uh, think twice about getting back on again. You know, even if you understand it's your own fault from something stupid you did. Yeah. I just wish I would have learned more. <laughs> Apparently not so much. <laughs> I still crash. I haven't crashed in a few weeks. I've had a tip over. I moved up in the mud to help a customer that was stuck. And when I put my kickstand down, of course, it just kept going. And I, I and the bike fell in the mud, which was not much help to the poor guy stuck there. But that's probably the last tip over I had. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that, Clinton, because that makes me feel better about my riding when I hear that you do that. Oh, my goodness. Um, when we do instructor training, we always ask the question, you know, what's your name? What kind of bike do you have? Tell us about your last crash or some embarrassing incident you've had on a motorcycle. <laughs> and I'm always leery of the person that says, no, I've never fallen off. I, I don't crash motorcycles. It's either baloney or it's a window into their personality that they're afraid to admit frailty. And that doesn't lend well towards being a humble instructor. Yeah. So evasive maneuvers and surprises are the two things that you seem to hear a lot of as far as crashes goes. How do you practice for evasive maneuvers? Um, Like swerving or... Braking? Well, I guess it would be everything, right? Yeah, braking, swerving, yeah. the whole bit. Not in, you can't do the emergency braking in traffic all the time, just in case you get rear-ended. But again, in a controlled environment, if you have the opportunity to go to a rider training school, fantastic. Then you'll get some, you know, non-critical, constructive criticism and coaching. That's really great. But a big parking lot, quiet road. Uh, gravel or paved, all those areas that allow you to practice without a lot of traffic around. Swerving, you can practice daily on your ride to and fro work. There's a maintenance hole cover. We used to call them manhole covers. Uh, don't ride over it. Push the bar in the direction you want to swerve around it. Uh, don't swerve up and zig and zag through the dotted line the constabulatory may frown on that mm -hmm. but you know grease spots stuff on the road don't fixate and stare right at it swerve around it with bar input and that's the best way to fine tune collision avoidance swerving techniques is to use them all the time and what about surprise? You know, those things, like you said, the vehicle that's going to turn left in front of you or, or pull out from the right um, into your lane. How do we train ourselves for that? How do we try and mitigate or, or eliminate a problem from that? Well, what I tried to teach my sons, and we have a lot of young staff that grew up in the dirt and then I've helped them get on street. What I tell them is if the speed limit is 50, you're probably doing 65. Most of us speed 15 over 10 miles and over the speed limit um, at an intersection where most accidents happen that is not where you should be doing 10 over so what i teach them is 
two fingers on your right hand should come out and gently breathe on the front brake on the approach to an intersection. What happens is our brake light goes on, which may tell following traffic, hey, I might have to do something up here. Maybe they take the foot out of the gas pedal. The other thing that happens is there's a very slight front suspension compression. So we're loading the front wheel, putting a little bit of weight on it. And my speed has scrubbed off from 65 down to around 50 kilometers an hour, 30 miles an hour. That's the posted speed limit. So now, if speed-wise, if I now get cut off, just that drop in speed alone might mean the difference of me making it home for my own dinner or hospital food if you don't slow down. Because the slower you go, the more time and space you have. Mm -hmm. The other mental awareness trick that we believe is scan left and right. Look at approaching cars. Physically, we look at that car or truck that's approaching. If the hood drops, why are they decelerating? Maybe they're setting up to cut you off. Don't trust a turn signal. Good grief. As I've said before, that could have been on when they bought the truck. And it's still on. Don't we've, trust We've all signals. seen those driving down the road, haven't we? Yeah. It's dangerous and mm-hmm. scary. Stay away from those people because you don't know what they're going to do. Then uh, watch the front tires. Are they going straight? Then maybe they're going to go straight through the intersection. But if they pull out wider, maybe they're setting up to take the turn at speed. Some drivers will slow down and gravitate towards the center of the lane closest to their turn. But there's a deviation in their steering. That's an alarm bell for us as riders. Watch that car that's approaching you. Now, I'm already covering my front brake. So if I get cut off, even though I'm old and have the reflexes of a drunk cat, now my hand is already on the brake. I'm way faster getting on the rest of the brake than the rider who's riding with her hand completely around the throttle. Mm -hmm. So that's, uh, there's a mental training that you can do for street survival and physical skill sets, braking, swerving, downshifting, that type of stuff. Well, any last thoughts you want to leave us with, um, with this? Yeah, I would hate that someone's had a crash and they've given up our sport and they're getting a little bit of a fix just by listening to Adventure Rider Radio. That's a crime in my mind. Um, The sport is still great. You've got to overcome your fear. Maybe start with a small bike. Buy some new gear. Throw the old stuff out if it's scraped up because that just reminds you of the crash. And then get some extra training if possible. But if not, start slow, no traffic, controlled environment, and just work gradually at getting the enjoyment back. That's the absolute key. If you're freaked out, worrying about what was behind you, that crash that happened time ago, you're not going to be able to enjoy and really get into the ride that's in front of you. That would be my tips. Clinton, great. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. I know you've got a a lesson you're about to go teach right now. Yes, apparently it's street riders that have never done dirt 
and they heard some nut at a bike show telling them that, you know, gravel will make you a better street rider. So I think four of them have showed up because <laughs> that nut was me. So I, I better go prove it to them. Well, that gravel, I mean, what you're talking about, you're, you're talking about learning to slide. A lot of what we've just been exactly. talking about, building your comfort zone, building your comfort level rather, so that when you're on the street and something does go wrong, start to slide, it's like, well, that's no big deal. Exactly. That's the whole idea of it is that to prepare people for a lack of traction control and if you get comfortable with that you're more likely to hang on to the bike when it does lose traction plus it's really fun Uh, some of those people go buy dirt bikes jim after a a exposure of half a day it's fantastic they realize how much fun it is yeah thanks clinton i appreciate it my pleasure all the best Uh, talk to you soon talk to you next time bye-bye now so now i think the exercise is think about the last time you had a riding issue whether it was being stuck in the mud, couldn't make a hill, ruts, gravel, whatever, and how you handled that. Did you decide afterwards that you're going to get some training to overcome the problem, figure out what you did wrong, and sort it out so that you can do it correctly next time? Or did you just tell yourself that you're going to avoid those situations in the future? So next time when you're out riding with your friends and they hit gravel or mud or whatever it is that turned you around last time or that, that, that gave you problems last time, Is that going to turn you around again and limit the fun that you have on your motorcycle? Maybe it's time to contact a trainer because it could be a mental block. It could be just some simple tips that you need to understand what you did wrong. But you need the confidence. And when you have skills backed with confidence, it takes you to another level. That was Clinton Smout I was talking with. He has his company called Smart Adventures and located in Ontario, Canada. His website is smartadventures.ca. Hey, I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. up another episode of adventure rider radio and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it special thanks to our producer elizabeth martin and of course to you the listener thank you very much for being a part of it by listening to the show hey if you're not doing it already we would love to get your support for the show it is built on a model of advertising and listener support we need both to make the whole thing work we need you to step up and become a supporter we'd love to get you as a monthly supporter on our patron account um, or anything ten dollars or more get you a sticker sent at you for uh, your pannier your toolbox anything fifty dollars more gets you mention a shout out on our raw show we just need your support however you want to do it drop our website adventureriderradio.com click on support and speaking of raw raw is the other show that we do adventure rider radio raw you can find it anywhere podcasts are found you need to subscribe separately it's not in this feed and it comes out once a month it's roundtable talks we have great fun with it it's quite popular anyway get out there and ride your bike if you can my name is jim martin thank you very much for listening i will talk to you next week Hickstead, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 